Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Chloe Grande. Chloe is a Canadian mental health blogger, writer and speaker. Chloe has personal experience of anorexia nervosa and following a relapse decided to start her blog to raise awareness of eating disorders. Chloe also has experience of social anxiety disorder, which is what we're discussing today. Hello, Chloe. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's so lovely to have you. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, also going through a heat wave here in Canada right now. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. But otherwise, you know, I I love summer weather. It makes me so happy. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's funny because like, I mean, I record these podcasts in advance, obviously, but when this one comes out, we probably won't be in the heat wave anymore. So just for anybody listening, just remember that time where we were all complaining about (laughs) the 40 degree heat. Um, And Chloe has it pretty similar, even though she's she's in Canada. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think the world is just getting warmer, which is not so great. But um, at least we'll get a nice tan. So. I'm really excited to speak to you today. Um, I think what we're talking about, a lot of people will have experience of. Um, and actually, um, one thing I'm really interested to talk about to you is um, I've been experiencing not social anxiety disorder, but something mm. a bit similar recently in terms of anxiety. Um, and I'm really interested to get your insight on like how to navigate certain things. But I will come back to that later. Um, mm. So I guess... Um, did you want to start with explaining your experience of having an eating disorder? For sure. So for me, um, I would say my eating disorder started when I was a teenager. And just to give some context about what mm-hmm. I was like, I was competing in gymnastics at the time. I was a very high achieving, perfectionistic uh, student. And I also had low self-esteem. So sort of a combination of all of these things made me... Um, probably a bit more likely to develop an eating disorder given my personality. And it was actually my gymnastics coach that pulled me aside and, and asked if anything was going Mm -hmm. wrong. So that was like a huge turning point because as you know, with eating disorders, like they're so, it's so hard to see anything is wrong with you. Um, so that was the first time that Mm -hmm. I sort of had a wake up call, but there was a lot of denial. Um, and my coach was very insistent. So he connected me to a school counselor and then eventually my parents got involved and we started doing family-based therapy, but flipping ahead, I guess it's now 10 years in the future. Um, I, I was doing really well and in recovery. And I think the pandemic just changed everything for me. Um, it was like, I instantly reverted back to all these really unhelpful coping mechanisms and behaviors and essentially felt like I had to start all over, you know, as an adult and learn different strategies. Um, I was no longer a teenager who had, was relying on my family to make sure that I was eating enough. You know, this was my sole responsibility. And when I went through that second recovery, that's when I started blogging. Um, and it's eventually led me to create actually my own business. Um, speaking about eating disorder recovery. So it's, yeah, something positive has come out of a really challenging experience. 
Hmm. Well, can I just say that's amazing? The fact that you've, you know, flipped something negative on his head. I think that is, you know, really hats off to you because that's amazing that you've been able to do that. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said. So before the pandemic, you said that kind of things were going well. And I think you said you were in recovery. So mm-hmm. do you, had you reached a point of like eating disorder kind of wasn't part of your life anymore? Or was it still there and you were working your way through that? What I recognize now is I was in partial recovery. Um, so <laughs> once I once I relapsed over the pandemic and, and saw this new therapist, she was like, you know, you still aren't eating enough. You do realize that, right? And um, it's difficult because like diet culture, fat phobia, like all these things like normalized disordered eating. Mm-hmm. So I think from the outside, Absolutely. no one else would recognize it. But like with my history of an eating disorder, like I knew I had to work basically twice as hard to, to fight against that voice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're so right in terms of, you know, diet culture and things like that. I think in, you know, recovery, regardless of whatever is hard, but when everybody else around you is just engaging in these behaviors that you're being told you have to let go of, because, you know, that's really affecting your mental health. I think that makes it like excruciatingly more difficult it's it's yeah i think navigating that when everyone around you is doing it 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 really is can be isolating i find at times as well because you feel Mm -hmm. you're going against the grain in some ways and obviously it's the right Mm -hmm. thing to do but it's challenging absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and i think because of that like you said with your sort of feeling like you were partially in recovery I think it makes it easy to slip into that sort of partial recovery um and I just wanted to ask you you know obviously you you realize that from your relapse but I guess you, you know if you could prevent a relapse it's not great to just have a relapse just so that you realize you're partially in recovery so would you have any tips to people to sort of recognize if they're not I think it, there's denial in where you are at in recovery as well. So if, if you had any tips of being able to recognize that for people. One thing I worked on with my therapist sort of near the end of our sessions um, at that period was putting together a list of green, yellow and red flags. So like we instead of just being like, oh, a red flag is like when I'm in a full relapse, like yellow flags were like, for me personally, major life transitions um, can be uh, when other eating disorder symptoms start slipping up again. Um, And I think that may be the case for a lot of people, you know, as we transition seasons, um, the pandemic, obviously, moving, relationships, all those kind of things. So putting together the yellow flags where it's like, I may be a bit more vulnerable at this point, where am I getting support? Um, what do I have already in place before I get to the the red flag and need more more help? And I think being able to recognise what that is for you, like you said, um, it's almost you're almost catching it before it's even started because you've said that could potentially be something that may be tricky. And I guess as well, even if even if you don't right think okay that specific situation that is now happening to me that was a yellow flag you might not have caught that one specifically but you would hope that from thinking about the others you would have things that you could implement to be like this is how i catch myself before 
there mm-hmm. before the relapse happens or things like that. Mm-hmm. I would say it is something that's always on your mind. I know this is like really common in the recovery community. It's a lifelong commitment or it's something you work hard on every day and it doesn't really go away. Like it is in the back of my mind. I mean, I hope one day I don't have to think as hard about it, but um, no, mm-hmm. it's it's a huge, it's, it is a lot of work. So anyone going through recovery, um, I, I hope they're able to recognize the important work that they're doing and sort of give themselves a pat on the back, even if others aren't recognizing that work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that is something we have to, thank you for bringing it up because I don't think we talk about that enough on the podcast on, you know, how difficult recovery is and how hard it is to every day pick yourself up. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just like you start in the morning and you go, it's every meal, every snack, you know, making the right choice, doing the right thing. So, it's tiring, but I think, you know, if you can do it, the rewards further down the line, although it may not feel like it when you're in recovery, are so worthwhile for that freedom overall compared to kind of what you're entrenched in right now. Oh, 100%. That was beautifully said. I was thinking recently too, in some <laughs> sense, it's, it's kind of boring. Like recovery is really boring. It's like you're just doing the same thing over mm. and over again. Um, (laughs) like it's not super exciting. So anyways, I was thinking about that one day when I was like, oh gosh, snack time. And again, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. I, and I think that's another really important thing to say is that it's not the most exciting thing. Um, and it can get really boring and it can just feel like it's meal after snack after meal. Um, but we almost, I think there is a glorification of recovery and that it's mm. this exciting, you know, you get to go up for cake and ice cream and, and you do all these things. And, you know, obviously there are those moments and that's brilliant. And they, they are great moments and that's really exciting, but like, that's not really the, the main element of it. And actually, like you say, the sort of repetitive stretch, I mm. think can f- feel quite dull. Um, but then with that, I think comes so much more excitement everywhere else rather than like, I was thinking about this the other day, how I used to get so excited to be like, oh, I'm going out for a burger tonight and I'm so excited and all my energy was focused on that. Mm. And now I'm like, hey, yes, that's cool that I'm going out for dinner, but actually I'm really excited to see my friends rather than mm. the food I'm going to eat. Like, I think your, your, your perspective, well, mine personally anyway, shifts onto what's exciting now. Like I'm not really enthralled by going out for dinner, but seeing my friends is really exciting. And the fact that I can be present in that moment is really exciting. Yeah. Just like the, the scope of your life opens up so much more. It's not so narrowly Mm -hmm. focused on food. That's so true. Even myself, I was out for dinner recently and it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't research all the restaurants in the area. I didn't look at the menus in advance. Like so mm-hmm. for someone who's not in recovery, that might seem very small and insignificant. But for those of us who, you know, poured hours into doing research and like had meltdowns when they don't have the, the menu item that we thought <laughs> we wanted to order, it, it is yeah. such a weight lifted off our shoulders. Like there's just so much more brain energy focused elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, um, I think those reflections, like you said about going out for dinner the other day and then like not actively thinking beforehand i'm not going to check the menu but actually realizing when you're there i didn't need to check the menu um i 
took my partner out on Monday for a seven course taster meal and mm. like it's something that he loves doing he loves like fine dining and stuff not something I enjoy in the slightest more because I'm more like I just want to go out for pudding rather than anything else <laughs> I, just, I just want a big bowl of ice cream um <laughs> oh that's what I said to him at the okay. end I was like pudding is different for us oh what did you think pudding was like puddings I don't know it's almost like jello like mushy old people food. <laughs> so you're saying ice cream and pudding like a rice thing? pudding yes so uh, yeah so pudding oh wow this is this is this is great um pudding in the uk is like it's like a um what's the word synonym for dessert ah so it's like the same thing as dessert so it's just like a broad term for like anything you'd have after your main Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. Just had to clarify there. I'm like, excited <laughs> for pudding. Like, no, uh. that's, that's... <laughs> is she is she actually 25? Because she looks 25, but actually she's 90. Um, oh, sorry. Okay, continue. But yeah, and so no, no, it's not... uh, no, that was really good because now if there's any American, Canadian, or you know, I don't know whether they in America it's pudding as well, but then be like, actually, she's talking about what she eats after um but yeah so we were there and I was like you know it's your birthday I don't want to like go on about this and I don't want to dwell but can we just recognize the fact that today like I haven't restricted what I've eaten I've eaten everything I wanted at this dinner and I was like that's actually mad that this is where we're at now like I didn't ever think you know the thought of going out for a taster menu before was like way in the distance Um, I think it does just creep up on you but I think it's really important to kind of sit back and recognize when those moments happen as well oh congratulations that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) um anyway now we have spoken about pudding and my win actually when I was talking about going out for dinner I realized that um what we're talking about today is social anxiety disorder and i I was just going to link that in and then I started talking about this seven course taster meal. Um, But obviously, um, as we mentioned in the introduction, you said that you have social anxiety disorder. And I wondered if for the listeners, you wanted to explain what that means and maybe how that's different to like generalized anxiety disorder. Right. So the best way I can put it, I think there's perhaps a misunderstanding that social anxiety is a fear of people, a fear of being in public. And we picture someone that is very isolated, never leaves their house. But the reality is you can't necessarily tell if someone has social anxiety. And for me, the way it shows up is more fear of judgment. So I am constantly thinking about others' perception in a lot of things that I do, um, whether it's going for walks, whether it's grocery shopping, um, it's almost like I feel as though everyone is noticing my flaws and and being hypercritical of me, which in reality isn't the case, mm-hmm. but it makes it extra challenging um, to, to put myself out there. And I feel that the pandemic really, really heightened the social anxiety, um, you know, before the pandemic, because we weren't so isolated. I think my social anxiety 
was at bay. Like I was able to, to function pretty well. And then once we went into lockdown and when masks came out, a lot of the messaging was avoid other people, stay away from them, you know, cross the street, like other people are dangerous. And that fed into my social anxiety so, so much. Um, and it was really, really difficult to unlearn that mindset because in some ways my social anxiety was keeping me safe. Similar to eating disorder recovery, a lot of um, the recovery for social anxiety, again, is very boring and it just is doing those things that we're scared of doing and doing them over and over again um, until the level of anxiety comes down. Well, and I can imagine, especially during the pandemic, I guess this was similar with um, eating disorder recovery as well, is that a lot of the things that you're asked to do, um, you know, in eating disorder recovery, it might be go to a cafe for breakfast or go out for dinner or whatever. Um, I guess with, you know, social anxiety disorder, if it's like a CBT based thing, it might be, you know, to go outside and to say hello or, you know, to, to like try and leave that judgment at home or whatever. We can't do any of that because you're, like you said, you're being told to stay at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know whether you had this experience, but I definitely felt um, like during the pandemic things in terms of my eating sort of did get worse, not out of me like actively trying to, but just because I wasn't able to practice those skills. The, the best I could do was to go to a bakery and bring a cake home. But that felt, for me anyway, it felt quite safe compared to going out, eating around other people, kind of... You know, I was still able to sort of be like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to finish that or whatever. Um, did you experience, was, did you think, is that something you experienced? Yeah, for sure. And I think the biggest thing for me was when I realized with my eating disorder and started seeing this new therapist, she was the one that pointed out, oh, you know, I think there is some underlying social anxiety and I didn't realize it. Um, but the more we talked about it, I realized that this was separate from my eating disorder. Like it wasn't, it existed even when my eating disorder was, wasn't at its peak. Um, so I think maybe other people also during the pandemic might have this realization that they also were a bit more socially anxious. I did, I did some polls on my Instagram, which are no way, <laughs> um, you know, scientific research, <laughs> but I found that a lot of people were saying, yes, I, I did feel a lot more anxious and wearing a mask made me feel safe. And even with my eating disorder too, like the mask was almost a way to take off that focus on my parents. Um, so when we had our mask mandates lifted, that was absolutely terrifying <laughs> for me. And I, I, I still, I enjoy the protective aspect of my mask, but Nowadays, it's like people stare at me for wearing a mask. So even that triggers my social anxiety a little bit more. There's just so many elements um, now with this this COVID world that we're living in that make it especially more challenging. Mm. Um, Just when you were talking about masks there, I don't know whether this was something that you had experience of, but um, I had body dysmorphia. And one big thing that I recognized when we kind of came out of the pandemic was, you know, like we are now, all you can really see is my head, you can't see my body. And so for me, that was like a really overwhelming and daunting thing was going from people only seeing my face to then people being able to see my whole body in public. And I, at the time worked online so you know everybody that i worked with um they 
only saw kind of from here. And when I met them, they were like, oh, I expected you to be taller. And they were very like making mm. a lot of comments about the way that they weren't like, oh, you know, we expected you to be, you know, thinner or larger or, or anything like that. But it was based on my height. I was like, if you're noticing my height, what else are you saying that maybe you don't feel is, you know, acceptable to say out loud. Um, so I found that mm. was like a very kind of anxiety provoking thing. Oh my goodness. I can only imagine. I, I've been working basically all virtual during this time, but I've mm -hmm. heard conversations of former colleagues. Yeah. Saying that same thing, even if it is height, it's still your appearance. Right. And there are things that go unsaid yeah. or, Oh, you look different than yeah. before the pandemic. It's like, what do you mean mm -hmm. by that? Um, and even something I've noticed is looking yeah. at my face so much. It's almost like a dysmorphia. Mm. Yeah. where we're not used to looking at our faces this often and it's like oh that wrinkle or you know my face isn't symmetrical mm -hmm. which it's not supposed to be but i never noticed these things before or cared about it <laughs> no no because before you would you know maybe in the morning when you're getting changed or putting your makeup on you'll look at your face maybe in the middle of the day just to check you've got no food in your teeth or something but i don't think i mean i'm, I'm talking about this from a, the perspective of uh somebody this is what i think normal for me this was not my experience because of the body dysmorphia mirror checking is something that i would constantly do um but i would imagine you know typically but like you say now i don't know about you but when even when we're doing this now i'm constantly looking at my face i'm i'm like looking at you i keep trying to pull myself to look at you like we're having a conversation my eyes are just on me because like you say i'm like i'm checking 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 mm -hmm. checking um and i think like you say you become so much more aware of everything that's that's on your face that before you probably would have never noticed right and when i think about kids who are looking at their face constantly. And I remember being mm. in that state of going through puberty. It's like, you're already, there's enough going on. Like you don't need to be staring at your face for so long, every single day. So I can only imagine no. the increased awareness in a negative focus on, on children and youth for sure. Yeah. It's funny that you said that though. Now I'm actively trying to look at the camera and it's so hard. I think as humans, <laughs> we're just drawn to our it face. Is. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And cause I think as well, um, your, when this records, it makes the other person slightly blurry. Whereas my face is clear. It's, it's actually easier for my eyes to look at my face as well. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's when you recognize it, it's, it's quite funny. I'm now like trying to actively just look away from the screen. Right? Um, so in terms of social anxiety disorder, um, how, how did you experience that that linked to your eating disorder? I noticed that there are some elements, elements of social anxiety that had nothing to do with food. For example, making mm. eye contact with people I found was very, very challenging. Um, coming out of lockdown, it made me, I almost could feel my face reddening. It just, it wasn't something I was used to. It just felt very, very intense to me. Um, and it also felt like they were looking at my appearance and perhaps, you know, comparing and contrasting how I looked before or after, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Um, but 
one of my deep, deep rooted fears that I, I still have yet to overcome is eating a full meal out alone by myself. And that is definitely linked to my eating disorder. Um, I have so much for respect for people that are just able to go for a, a dinner out on their own. Um, it was something I was able to do when I was traveling and in new places. But now that I'm back in my hometown, I have this fear that people will, will judge me for being alone, that I may see someone that I know, um, that I'll come across as really awkward. Those are all fears that my social anxiety is telling me. That's really interesting what you just said about kind of you can do it when you're away, but actually being in like your home environment. Like I think I said to you before we started this podcast, I went to Fertiventure and that was a trip on my own. Mm -hmm. And before then I'd never eaten anything on my own. Like I'd never even been to a cafe and got a croissant or something on my own. I don't think I even had a coffee on my own. Um, but then all of a sudden it was every single meal was on my own and I did find you know the first the first few days really really challenging um I mean, it, because you you know especially when you're in a holiday environment it's like everyone's there with their family or with their friends and they're kind of you think that they're looking at you like you know why are they on their own um but then I started reading and or doing mm. a sudoku and then those thoughts sort of dissipated a little bit um but I think yeah I think uh, you know that sort of eating on your own especially I think when you have you know, history of an eating disorder or eating issues it can be quite challenging and I felt like I could get away with quite a lot as well like because it, it was like a buffet style thing so I felt oh there's nobody here to tell me what I can and can't eat right. um but then I thought Hannah what the hell is the point in doing that <laughs> do not slip into that again Good for you. I mean, like the fact that you have that awareness now, but yeah, there's no mm -hmm. one holding you accountable. Um, I noticed mm -hmm. that too, like working remotely, no longer was I having lunch with my coworkers. So I was like, oh, I could have something that, you know, they wouldn't judge me for. But when I, when you have people around you, it's, it's so interesting how our mind works that way. Mm. Yeah. And actually we're in situations like that, the only person it's affecting, and this is why I said to myself on holiday, what the hell are you doing? Is you, you know, it's not actually affecting anybody else. Uh, I mean, you know, it might kind of affect relationships, but fundamentally an eating disorder is affecting you. So it's like, okay, so you're, you're eating what you think other people will want you to eat so that, you know, socially that's acceptable but when you're on your own you're not going to but actually to be honest with you most people that are around you if you colleagues and stuff like that, probably not even going to notice what you're eating course, anyway so you might as well carry on doing it for you totally and another situation that that reminds me of is grocery shopping i used to truly believe that the cashier was judging what i bought so it was like i felt like i needed to impress the cashier um or in some ways prove that, you know, oh, I'm actually healthier than everyone else. Like, look at me. Look how good I am at eating. They don't care. They're just swiping. No. <laughs> they don't even notice what you're, what oh, you're buying. Oh, no, not at all. So it's like, who am I doing this for? It is, yeah, recovery, ultimately, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it has to be for you. Like, of course, I could keep mm -hmm. using these safety behaviors with social anxiety, but that's only going to harm me in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, 
because I think, you know, as, you, as you've explained there, there are um, definitely links between social anxiety disorder and an eating disorder. But you have said that your social anxiety exists, you know, even when the eating disorder isn't there. And I was having a look at, um, I'm on the NHS website, which is like, who does the healthcare in the UK, just in case we have people mm-hmm. listening who don't know what the NHS are. Um but basically, like, so it's saying that there's like a, you know, a worry about social activities and some of that could be eating with other people, um, worry about doing things um, that might embarrass you, find it difficult to do things when others are watching you, um, feeling criticised, having low self-esteem, um, having symptoms of um, feeling sick, kind of anxiety related symptoms, I would say. Um and worrying about everyday activities such as you know speaking to people on the phone or starting conversation and i guess the reason i wanted to read those out was i wanted to ask because not everybody with an eating disorder has social anxiety disorder i think um what was it i think i put a a stat up didn't i that 12 percent of the general population have social anxiety disorder whereas it's estimated i mean this is quite a large estimation 16 to 88 percent of those with anorexia or 17 to 65 percent of those with bulimia but i guess that's still not everybody whereas the symptoms that i mentioned sounded quite similar to eating disorder symptoms so basically what i'm trying to say in this very long-winded question (laughs) is um how would you distinguish the two because i think there is quite a lot of overlap obviously i don't want people to listen to this podcast and you know it'd be great if they listen and think okay actually i think i might need to go and get support for this but also don't want everybody to then think oh my god i've got social anxiety disorder and that should be another thing um that they're worried about when actually it's the eating disorder causing those symptoms right right i mean right off the bat i'm not a clinician so i think if you if you do Mm -hmm. think that (laughs) that that would be a conversation definitely to address with whatever your sure. primary healthcare practitioner is. But what I would say from my personal experience is if you take meals and eating out of the equation and you think of other social activities that you're doing. So for example, you mentioned the phone that causes me a lot, a lot of anxiety. I need to over rehearse. I need to over practice. That's actually another symptom of social anxiety is like overcompensating for your perceived flaws. Um, so similar to an eating disorder, the, the symptoms just affect your life so greatly and negatively impact in a way that makes it hard to function. Okay. So the, the fear is, is greater than like, sometimes the fear is too much. I would say as well. Like, I think some people's social anxiety simply can't make phone calls because it's just too, too terrifying. Um, and that's when my therapist sort of recommended like the tiered approach. And I'm sure this rings a bell for anyone that's gone through CBT therapy, but just, you know, starting with a simple phone call to someone that, you know, like calling a, a parent or a family member and then eventually working your way up. But I know another big thing, um, for social anxiety is a lot of fear around talking to people in authority figures. Um, whether that's someone who works in healthcare, whether that's a manager. And I certainly experienced that in the workplace. So once I transitioned from school to the work environment, I was noticing 
it's so, so hard for me to speak up. I always felt like I needed to know in advance what I was going to say, um, which just isn't practical <laughs> in reality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, the, and thank you for that advice. I think, um, you know, that'd be really helpful. I think what you said about when you take food out of the equation, I think that was a really good tip to think about. Um, and it's, you know, the tiered approach that you mentioned. Um, and I just want to ask about, I guess, another thing. And I know, like you said, you're, you're not a clinician, but, um, I think it's always good to hear kind of people's experience if they've had experience of it. Um, so basically this is just coming from what's happened to me kind of within the last week. Um, but mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask. So, um, the other day I was feeling very anxious, um, and I don't, I think at the moment it's like, a, I'm not sure whether it's anxiety or depression. I think it's like a, a kind of slurry of both of them together. Um, but then equally I'm finding it quite challenging. My relationship with exercise is quite compulsive at the moment. And so I was in a bit of a predicament where I hadn't left the house all day because I'd been really anxious about going out and I'd been, had a really low mood. So I'd kind of just like been moping around the house and, and not doing anything. And I thought, I know right now that what will make me feel better is to get outside and to go and do some exercise. But then I had the kind of compulsive exercise part of my brain, like, yes, you need to exercise. You've not done enough exercise today, blah, blah, blah. blah. So basically, what I'm trying to say is we don't need to sort of like specify it to this situation, but when you have sort of opposing arguments that one would be beneficial for the eating disorder to try and challenge that, mm. um, you know, for, for that instance, that would have been not going to the gym, but then equally I needed to expose myself because I was getting anxious about going out and seeing people and stuff like that. So it's almost like those opposing things. Do you have any tips for navigating those sorts of situations when kind of you you need to do something, but whichever one is kind of feeling like it's feeding into one side? Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's a really challenging situation to be in. I have so much empathy for that. <laughs> I also struggled a lot with building um, just a more balanced relationship with exercise because when mm -hmm. I was at my sickest, one of the first things they told me was you can't do exercise. So then I began to learn that, well, okay, exercise must be a way to lose weight. And I became really focused on that being my goal with exercise. So since then I've more thought about it as movement um, and taken a more gentler approach to it. But like you said, being inside all day, I don't think would make anyone feel better. Like going outside absolutely is like challenging those thoughts around perhaps some sort, some underlying social anxiety, but also you don't want to feed into your eating disorder voice. That's telling you to really push your body, um, to an extreme because that would, yeah, it's like you can't have, or you can't win both. Um, but what I would say is, if you can, I think for me, the eating disorder is the hardest and most ingrained voice that I have to challenge. So if my eating disorder voice was telling me to exercise, I know first and foremost, 
I need to address that before the social anxiety. Like that voice is, is a lot louder. And I don't know if anyone else can relate to like sort of the, the voices terminology or that way of seeing um, your illnesses. But at the end of the day, it is about challenging those thoughts and not giving into them. So like, yes, you can leave the house, but you know, maybe you could just go for a walk instead. Like maybe you don't need to go to the gym for three hours. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, now that I'm out of that frame of mind, I think you've just knocked the nail on the head. Like I didn't need to go to the gym. I could have just gone outside and, you know, gone for a little walk or gone mm. sat on a park bench and rang a friend or something. And I think in the in the moment i was like there is no shade of gray here it's like you know we either sit on the sofa or we go to the gym um yeah. there's quite a chunk of shade of gray there that i could have um kind of played around with but i think when you're in that moment that's really really difficult to acknowledge and to actually make the right decision absolutely it's so difficult you're right though like I think with eating disorders and with anxiety, it's, it's very like black and white thinking. It's all or nothing. It's either I have this wonderful, perfect conversation with a stranger. It's not like I can just go and say hi. And then we're just about mm -hmm. a bit awkward. Like, no, no, no. It has to be pushing myself mm -hmm. to the fullest extent possible. I'm thinking about when you went for the seven course meal. It's like, it's either a seven course meal or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right yeah and that's that that was what i had to say to my partner before we walked in the door i was like mm -hmm. okay we're practicing shades because my current thing at the moment is like being in that shade of gray because like you say it's so black and white with everything and i was like if i don't finish everything on my plate that's okay like don't be like you haven't got that tiny little grain of rice or something like just just let me do what i think is right and if that means like leaving a bit just so that you know i have room to enjoy everything um that's okay i mean obviously not taking like you know that to the extremes and being like all the time when you know that you're actively doing something wrong being like oh it's my shade of gray um yeah. i think you can be really honest with yourself you know what's actually right and what's actually you know, a very more white or a very more black shade of gray. Mm -hmm. I love that you're able to have those conversations with your partner and, and bring them in and tell them what's going mm -hmm. on too. Um, that's huge. I think at, initially I kept my social anxiety very like hold up um, because there was a, an element mm -hmm. of shame. I thought it was just a personal flaw and, oh my gosh, I'm so awkward. People will see me differently and that's not the case. So the more I talk about it, I think other people can relate to certain aspects of it or they can help you. Um, so my partner is like super yeah. outgoing and probably doesn't have an ounce <laughs> of social anxiety. Um, but when I struggle to talk about myself or, or things that are going on, he, he can help prompt me and he'll be like, oh, and Chloe did this really cool thing recently. And then that's my cue. <laughs> <laughs> And that's really good. I think um, my partner is the same. He's very outgoing um, and stuff. And I think it really helps. I think it helps. It's quite a good balance to have in a relationship is, you know, um, somebody very outgoing and then some maybe that, you know, takes step yes. back a little bit. Yes. Um, but it's, if you were both super outgoing, I feel like you could never get one edgeways. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's perfect balance. <laughs> 
Um, so to finish us off, I just wanted to talk a little about treat, little bit about treatment. Um, and I think you mentioned earlier about um, some people that have social anxiety disorder that might be difficult around like positions of authority. So that could be a therapist. Um, but do you think there are any other ways maybe that you've experienced or that you've heard other people say in how like social anxiety disorder could affect, I guess, you know, treatment for an eating disorder or for social anxiety disorder? Mm. One of the things that comes to mind is going back to the whole idea of telephoning someone and starting initial conversation mm -hmm. can be very, very challenging. Even myself, when I did go through that relapse, I wasn't like I just found the, the first therapist and called them and jumped into the appointments right away. Like this took months. I was doing so much research. I believe I had to, you know, like write down a script of questions to ask. I remember just like clutching the phone so hard. Mm -hmm. My, my hand was turning white. So making that first step, like we talk about it so much where it's like, oh, just ask for help. Just ask for help. It's like, how, how do you ask for help? If asking for help is like feeds into your, um, your mental illness and is like part of it. And that's like a huge barrier. So virtual, like if you aren't comfortable seeing people in person, you know, looking at alternatives, whether it's over the phone, where it's virtual, um, here in Canada, actually, I did a lot of research into free options because as we know, treatment for eating disorders for any sort of mental illness, um, can be quite costly. And I found this program called mind beacon and it was really cool because it was like, um, a clinician who would message back and forth. And this was like such a low barrier way for me to start addressing some elements of social anxiety, um, just like over a chat. And then she gave me readings to do. So if you're able to find those like lower barrier ways to like eventually build up to whatever it is that you're trying to achieve or the, the thoughts that you're trying to challenge the most, that's what I would recommend. Yeah, that's such a good idea. Actually, um, Tessa, who did the episode, it will be last week. So when this comes out, it will have been last week's episode. Um, she has an app called Bean There, and that's sort of like a, it's a, a chat. Um, and it's just, it's not necessarily therapists. Um, it's people that have got experience of body image issues. And you, it's mm. like having a sponsor at Alcoholics Anonymous. And you chat through um, difficult situations. So I imagine that sort of thing would be brilliant if you have got, social anxiety because you it's it's just texting um, which may still be anxiety provoking but you don't have to pick up the phone you don't have to see someone face to face um and yeah so that might be a place to start i love that yeah because the peer-to-peer -peer may seem less intimidating than speaking to you know mm -hmm. psychiatrists or psychologists absolutely um and yeah. it's very validating as well to speak to someone that mm -hmm. has gone through something similar yeah, I think that that aspect of it, um, it kind of takes away the judgment as well. I think um, sometimes in eating disorders or maybe I think there's a bit of like a stigma nowadays that everyone has social anxiety, especially like the younger generation, which is not true. Um, but I think that could be something that you're like, oh, like everyone's got this, so I don't need help for it. But then if somebody else is saying, yeah, I've as the app is called, I've been there. 
um, you can then feel like you get that reassurance and actually you do deserve help and support for whatever's going on. Yeah, absolutely. It is something that, you know, you can work to overcome. And part of me is remembering times in my life where the social anxiety wasn't as strong and like the freedom that came with that, um, that always helps me do those things that are super challenging. Even being on this podcast, I don't think a year ago mm -hmm. I would have ever reached out to you <laughs> to um, consider being a guest. It would have just been way too terrifying. Um, so it's, it's mm -hmm. cool that this is showing some sort of progress and hopefully it's resonating with some of the folks listening as well. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And <laughs> I am honored that you feel like you can come on the podcast because, um, that's yeah that's totally wonderful and it's been so lovely chatting to you and you know getting all your insight and everything so thank you so much for coming along um i know you have your blog and your business so if people want to find out more about you um where can they where can they come along to yeah well first of all it's just been so lovely chatting with you it feels like we've known <laughs> each other and it's so cool that you're all the, all the way across the world <laughs> I'm just laughing at what we said about the pudding. That's something I will not forget. Um, but if you're looking to, to find me online, my website is chloegrande.com. And on social media and Instagram and Twitter, it's Chloe She Grows. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I might have to put the pudding in the title somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Full, full anyway, of pudding. Blabbing them. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's what we'll call this one. Cool. And people will be like, why the hell is that episode called Full of Pudding? And, and they'll have to listen. To they'll have well. to listen to find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's well, been so, so, so great. Chloe. Um, yeah. Lovely to chat to you. Likewise. Thanks so much, Hannah. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.